Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 183, Winter is Coming, recorded March 8th. 2015 and brought to you by Element OP Productions. ElementOP.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Linux show that's not about Linux, but about life in the context of Linux. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockroll, and joining me this week is the great gooey kid, Seth Anderson. Hello, Seth. How are you today? Doing great, Mark. And I tried to trick you up with the Roman numerals there, but you, uh, you made it past it. Doggone it. I looked at the calendar in my uh, dock. That's how I was able to do that. Uh, so Chris isn't with us tonight. Uh, no explanation as to why. Just said something came up. So hope he's okay. I think he is. Um, I think he uh, wanted to go see a movie or something. I don't know. Uh, but anyway... Just Seth tonight, as if that's not enough. Seth is more than enough to do a show, so we're glad to have you. And this week is going to be uh, pretty much a news show. We've we've had some good topics lately, and we've given short uh, short shrift to the news. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. And the, the primary topic, nominally anyway, I don't know how much we'll get to it, is the fact that uh, just last week or two weeks ago... Uh, or seven years ago, depending on when you're listening to this, um, Title II became the law of the land with regards to net neutrality. We've talked a little bit before about what that means, and we're going to pontificate a little more because, hey, we can get another show out of it, so we will. Well, we can get at least one more show out of it, Mark. you got (laughs) to... Right. No guarantees this will be the last one. Well, Well, we'll see. It depends on how badly they screw things up. Right. That's that's the key at this point. Um, so I just want to say a shout out to Jeff. I won't uh, say your last name. Who uh, said uh, sent me an email? Say hey, I've got a a three hour layover in Atlanta. Do you want to meet uh, for lunch? And I said okay. So I met up with Jeff. He bought me lunch. And uh, anytime somebody wants to buy me lunch, I'm game. And we had a nice chat. And uh, Jeff, it was great meeting you. And uh, next time you're in Atlanta, or anybody else, right? Uh, if you're flying on Delta in the U.S., you're pretty much going to end up in Atlanta at some point. And uh, if it's particularly on a weekend, uh, I, I'd, I'd love to meet our listeners. And if, you, if you're local to Atlanta or whatever, just let me know. I'd love to hang out with you guys. So uh, Jeff and I hung out for a couple of hours and, and had a good time and got to know each other and about each other's families. And um, I would love to do that with any one of you because, as I've often said, you're the reason that we do this. And it's so odd to me because he was minimally, mind you, but he was a little starstruck. And it's so odd to me for anybody <laughs> to be even remotely starstruck around me. Uh, but he was. He was just just that, you know, I, certainly not, you know, Sean Connery quality. Uh, but there was just a little bit of, of starstruckness in his eyes. And, and I just, I don't even understand that. You yeah, know, it could have just been dust from the airplane, Mark. You might not have been starstruck be. at all. Or jet lag. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I'm attributing it to that. My ego said, oh, it's clearly he's he's awed by my fame when really he was just getting a cold. Yeah. You know, not a lot of people stop by Van Zandt County. I don't know why, but <laughs> <laughs> nobody wants to meet up with the gooey kid. Yeah. If you're ever three and a half hours south of Dallas in the middle of nowhere, let Seth know. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm a little east. I'm not south. Right. And it's not three and a half hours. I just... Right, but they're not going to know. So yeah, because no, somebody will be. Hey, I'm I'm outside this town called Waco. That's like three hours south, and I'm like, <laughs> c- congratulations! <laughs> I'm waving. Good. Um, 
uh, you uh, there in Texas got uh, the last little bit of snow of the season, most likely. Yeah, we and you know it actually there were a few inches, like three inches, three and a half was the official total at Dallas. And you know you got to remember three and a half inches of snow in Texas. That's the equivalent of like seventeen thousand feet in Boston. So it it was a lot. I was surprised because like when I went to sleep, it was still raining, but it um it switched over from rain to snow. It froze, and there was like three inches of snow on top. And by the end of the day, it was pretty much all gone because the temperature made it up to like forty that day. But um, I think that was the last snow day of the season for the Dallas Fort Worth area. But it was fun, you know, um got another day off work. Those are always nice. Uh got to save some gas money and I didn't have to drive my brand new car in. I was thinking about I already told my boss is like, uh I'm gonna be late coming in tomorrow, just to let you know. I'm not even gonna try to drive in rush hour with my car. Wait, wait, we can't let that pass. Brand new car Yes. Um I had a 2010 Nissan Cube that I love because I'm a big guy and has a big guy. I can sit comfortably in the front seat and somebody my size could sit comfortably behind me. Um, and so 2014 was the last year they made the Cube. And so there were, there wasn't going to be a 15 model and my car is starting to have some issues and it's going to be paid. It was going to be paid off at the end of this year. So I was like, I'm going to call this dealership and I'm going to say, do you have any cubes left? And they're going to say no, and that's going to be the end of the call. So I call the dealership. I say, hey, do y'all have any cubes in stock? And they go, yes, we have a couple. And I said to myself, oh, crap. So um, I got off work Monday, drove out to the dealership, and um, I drove home in a new cube, uh, 2014 model. Um, so I call it Cube Squared just because that seems like a cool name to me, uh, the geek. Um, so, yes. So I'm, are the... Are the cubes no more? I mean, why, why did you think there wouldn't be any? No, they, um, I believe they are, my understanding is they're still making them in Japan, but they are no longer marketing them in America. So the 2014 is the last year model, uh, in America. So there, there isn't a 15 model cube in the U.S. Any idea why? You're the only one that liked them? Uh, you know, I've, I've seen several, um, not, you know, they're, they're distinctive. They're a little quirky and I don't understand why they made a lot of people's worst car design. Uh, part of the reason is apparently they designed the cube years ago, but they just, they kept it in Japan. And so like the Kia Soul and the Honda element, uh, that kind of boxy kind of car, um, they established the market here in America and got them a market share. So when the cube came over, it was competing in a market that it helped pioneer, just not in America. And so it apparently didn't live up to their specifications or their projections. So they are, they are not doing it, but I love it. It's a, it's an awesome car. Um, if for, you know, I mean, for what it is, it's a, it's a very low price point, very, nice ride comfortable lots of not it's not super roomy but like there's not a ton of cargo room but there's a lot of room for you to sit so like i say i i can sit in the front seat i can have it where it's comfortable and i can get out of the seat and get in the passenger or get in the bike seat and be comfortable and i don't know of any other four-door small car where that's the case like when i drove a nissan sentra I mean, I don't think you could fit a car seat 
behind me, much less have anybody sit there. So, you know, like I say, I like it so much. I I bought another one. It's uh the Honda the Honda Hyundai what no the Scion I forget who makes it Toyota but Toyota very yes. similar car yes very and I was actually I was looking at the Scion um that's what I was planning to buy because um you know the the height wise not quite as much headroom has the cube but very similar um in model. But, um, yeah, that, 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 that was the car I was going to purchase because I liked the cube design so much. All right. Well, congratulations on your new car. Thank you. Um, I'm sorry about the payment. You know, actually I, I played some serious hardball with them. Um, I got a super good warranty. I went from a five month to a four and a half month term and, uh, my payment only increased $10. And the warranty that I got includes road hazards for tires, as well as that includes the oil changes and regular maintenance. So right. I, uh, I, you know, I love the deal. I love making the deal and the haggling and laughing at them when they uh, come out with their first number and, uh, you know, and just telling them I can drive my car home. It still runs. You gotta want, you gotta sell me this. So, um, I think I could have talked them down a little bit more, I think, but I I got a phenomenal deal for me. I was very happy with it. Yeah, I have uh I, I don't know that's a technique, but it's an attitude. Right. You just gotta say I, I don't have to buy a car today. Right. And that changes everything. Yeah. Whenever yeah, you know, and they say, you know, because the number they come out with, you just like, dude, take about two hundred dollars a month off of that and come back. And they're like, huh? I'm not paying anywhere close to that. And no, you don't have to go talk to your manager. Let's just skip that step. Uh, you know, I let them, like I say, I enjoy it. I enjoy the whole, let me go talk to him. And I'm like, yeah, you go do that, buddy. And I'll go, I'll talk to my people too. So I, I, enjoy, I don't know why I enjoy it, but I enjoy the haggling and the negotiation and getting a good deal. Yeah, I I used to do, um, I used to do that just sort of for fun, right? Uh, actually, even when I wasn't interested in buying a car, I'm I'm that twisted. <laughs> I would go in and play the game just to kill an afternoon. Um, my wife absolutely hated that and hated me for it. I think I think there was uh, she genuinely hated the person that I became. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, um. I lost my train of thought. Oh, yeah. I used to do that. Now I've decided that my time is more valuable than that. And when I, 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 I haven't bought a car in six years, 2008, seven years, um, was the last time that I, uh, bought a car. And that at that point, I had that attitude of, if my time is too valuable here, I'm going to come in here. Here's the price I'm going to pay. And I want that car. If you can't do that car at that price, I'm going to leave. I don't have time for this. Uh, and so the guy was like, no, I, I really can't do that. Okay, bye. And I left. And that was the end of it. And I went back like a week later and said, here's the money I have. That's the car I want. Can you do that? Yes. Yes, we can do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and then, you know, that's that's kind of the way I do it. And I probably didn't get a great deal, but I got what I was willing to pay. Right. 
I don't think anybody, everybody leaves the car dealership thinking they got a great deal, which means they didn't. Um, you know, you, if you're not going to, a car dealership isn't going to last giving everybody awesome deals. They're going to have to screw people to stay in business. So, but what matters is that you think you got a good deal. Yeah. Okay. That's all there is to that. Uh, I thought that would generate some more discussion. Uh, oh. So uh, <laughs> I mentioned repeatedly, actually, I have moaned and complained about it many times, um, that my Android Lollipop phone has sort of sucked since Lollipop. Uh, and um, so a, a listener said, have you tried a full wipe factory restore? And I had done the factory restore, but not the full wipe before. So I thought I'd be, I'm willing to try it. And, and because I use titanium backup on a rooted phone, that's a painless procedure. Um, and my scripts, uh, I have titanium backup. If you're not familiar with it and you have an Android phone, get familiar with it. You have to be a little geeky, right? You have to root your phone to get the power to, to do what you need to do. Uh, and the, the app costs like seven bucks, but it's totally worth it. Um, so I have it set up to, uh, three times a week, make a backup of everything, all my settings, everything. And once a week on Sunday mornings at 2 a.m., upload those to Dropbox. So I have an offsite copy. So anytime I can restore from the local copy, but if I do a total wipe, uh, I can can pull things over from Dropbox and restore. So it makes switching phones super easy. It makes uh, uh, recovering if you've root or rommed uh, your phone after you've rommed it or, or tried something else super easy. Um, and it's just it's totally worth it. So anyway, because I have um, titanium backup and because it just updated last night, the absolute worst case scenario is I'll lose anything I've put on it today. But almost everything I do is in the cloud. So I'm not likely to lose anything even because I use Google um, Hangouts for text messages, even those things are in the cloud now. So the odds of me losing anything are almost non-existent. So I decided to just go ahead and wipe the thing and start over. Right. So I did. And um, th- I think this is new to Olipop, but when I restarted it, uh, the phone said, hey, we have this configuration that we've backed up for you. Would you like to use it? And it even showed the last date it was used. So it was used on the Nexus 5 yesterday or today. Um, and I said, Okay, let's do that. So that's, I think, a new thing. And I got to say, I'm pretty impressed with it. It uh, pulled down all my apps, not the data that goes with with those apps that I can tell. It looks like they're all blank. Uh, but it did it did pull down all my apps. So I'm looking at, you know, all my contacts and everything is there. Uh, but also it gra- went and grabbed all the apps that it could. And some of the widgets are in the place, some of the uh, screen. So it's it's certainly cleaner than I've ever restored a phone before. And I'm just now experiencing, experimenting with it for the first time. But I think Google is finally starting to get, get it right in terms of their own backup and restore. They've had a backup and restore function for a while now. Uh, and I think they're, I think they're finally starting to get it right. Cool. And that makes me happy. Yay. So anyway, just shout out to Google. Whoop, whoop. And I don't know how things work in other countries. I know some other countries do this, but not on the same schedule. But today was our spring forward day. Um, and so that means that we arbitrarily um, turned the clocks forward an hour so that we could get more daylight in a day. Somehow that artificial act will add time to the 
nature of the universe. Not quite sure I f- know how that works, but we did it today. So if you showed up to church today an hour early, uh, Noah, you'd be an hour late today. Um, that's why. Congratulations. You've been screwed by Ben Franklin. Yeah. You know, I like it simply because I like having the extra daylight at the end of the day when I'm up and productive and can do something rather than, you know, I don't mind working in the dark because I'm inside a building. So let me have the sunlight when I'm off work. Uh, I don't know that we need it, but yeah. So yay. So the idea is, the idea is that we are moving as the daylight changes, right? Naturally days get longer and shorter. December 21st is the shortest day. June 21st is the longest day. We are moving our calendar so that the more light is in the afternoon um, instead of in the morning with the idea that most people don't get up early in the morning. So when people are sleeping the daylight away, we're going to move that. So that now when you get home at 6, you've still got a couple hours of daylight left instead of 30 minutes, which I guess made sense in an agrarian society. But it doesn't make any sense at all right now when the first thing anybody does when they get up in the morning, whether it's light or dark outside, is turn an electric light on. Because we don't build our houses for natural light anymore. We're, we don't live our lives by the sun. Used to be, right, dur- during the time that this became the thing, you started your day when the sun came up and you stopped it when the sun went down because you couldn't do anything by candlelight. You know, you couldn't do much um, uh, useful. Right. So it, things are... <sighs> Things have changed, but for some reason, we're still doing this. And and it just was expanded as recently as, I think, seven or eight years ago. President Bush, um, so seven to ten years ago, expanded it to eight months, I think it was, instead of six months. Um, and I don't, I don't understand the rationale. The idea is it saves us oil somehow because we're burning less lights. I don't, I don't get it. I don't see how it works. Yeah. You know, I personally like it because I live on acreage and there's things I have to get done outside that aren't like right by the house. And I don't want to have to, you know, hook up uh, big floodlights or whatever. If I need to go kind of cut some shrubs out or take care of the goats or, you know, do some outside maintenance on the place. I love it because then I can get this stuff done during the week and have my Saturday for major projects or fun. So, you know, but most people in America live in an urban or suburban setting where it doesn't matter. You know, most, you know, most people, um, have no yards or very small manageable yards that you can mow by the porch light. So they, most people don't need, um, the daylight saving time. I like having it because like I say, now I will have, I can get home from work and then I can go outside and work for an hour or two versus last week. I could have worked for maybe 30 minutes. Um, you know, and that's not worth changing into outside working clothes in, uh, you know, but for a couple hours that is worth it. So, you know, which, I, under- which I, t- I totally accept all of that as, as fact. But if you just waited six weeks, you'd be able to do that anyway, because nature is already changing the, the daylight on us. Well, yeah, but no, I'll be able to work for a couple of hours. Um, so I I like it. I 
I like that it's there. I like having the daylight at the end of the day. I don't mind driving to work in darkness. Which I will anyway um, until summer. Regardless of the time change, I, I'm driving to work in the dark. Well, It was just starting to get light, right? And now it's not anymore. It was to the point to where the, the sun was coming up in my rearview mirror and about the time I was getting off of the interstate and getting into the city where it wouldn't be in my rearview mirror, it was up past the point. So now it's going to be back dark again. Uh, and so hey, I'm, you know, it won't be till the height of the summer where it's going to be in my rearview mirror again. All right. So anyway, that's uh random pontificating that I must do twice a year. I'm contractually obligated to grouse about it. Well, because because we're on the internet, you know, we're <clears throat> there. Golly, today every news headline is why daylight saving time needs to be abolished. Uh, right. And it, whenever the clocks go back, it'll be again. It's like I think it's probably the exact same stories. They just recycle the right. date on them and post right. them. Um, so yeah, it's you know we're we're required to do it. Or we wouldn't be allowed to have our podcast on the internet. Right. The secret contract I signed with the military industrial contract uh, complex before becoming a podcaster requires that twice a year I complain about daylight savings time. Yes. And now the jackbooted thugs are on the way because I mentioned the super secret contract. So <laughs> uh, if I'm dragged out of here while recording, uh, you'll know why. So let's take a little bit uh, of look at, wow, I just had a little stroke. Right here on the air. Let's take a little look at some of the news of the week, starting with a a, uh, a warning from the GUI kid himself. Don't reboot that server. Well, yeah, this is they have finally got um, no reboot patching is coming to Linux 4.0. And this is kind of the backdoor announcing that they have flipped the uh, nomenclature on the Linux kernel, it's no longer 3.x, it's 4.x for all of your kernel awesomeness. Um, and um, K-Splice is the name of the program that is out and it's kind of worked its way into the official kernel now. You will now be able to do updates and have to reboot your Linux servers less. Which, you know, for Linux is in the, in the desktop, who cares? Reboot at the end of your workday, no big deal. But when you're in the server and you're running like Amazon that measures their income in per second, you don't want that server to be down at all. So I, you know, this is a good thing. You know, and again, to the average end user, no big deal. But to the sysadmin, um, you know, website junkies who measure their yearly downtime in milliseconds, this is a big deal. So people can now patch their Linux servers. Um, once 4.0 works its way out into the mainline distros, they can patch them without rebooting. Yay, progress. Um, which has come, uh, has been a, up, uh, up to kernel patches. We haven't had to reboot anything for a while. Right. Uh, so th- I, th- I think this is a minor enhancement. But again, if you're among the group of people that, that it's important to, it's important to you. There's some circle speech for you. <laughs> yep. Well, you know, I think, I, I think it will end up being a very big deal because, um, a one, it will be a way for Linux to gain even more market share in the, um, 
in the place because, hey, look, you don't have to reboot our servers every month anymore. Um, like, like Microsoft does. Now you can, uh, when we update the core kernel, uh, this server can keep right on trucking, making you money, you know, move fully to the Linux infrastructure. Power to the penguin. <laughs> um, I remember that was a big thing with uh, Windows NT 4.0. So we're going way back there. Was the the sort of uh, mantra from Gates was get the reboots out because prior to that in the in the nine x world everything required a re- reboot changing an IP address required a reboot um, reconfiguring um, screen resolution required a reboot that may be a bit of an exaggeration but almost everything required a reboot rebooting your computer required a reboot really yes so <laughs> a pre reboot and then a post reboot reboot. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So that's I don't know how that works. How do you how do you shuffle out a a, a kernel? The and that's like replacing the engine of the car without stopping. I don't know how you do that. You know, I mean, I'm sure it does one of these things to where it doesn't reboot, but like let's say um you know, because okay, your operating system is not made up of one one program or file that runs it's a multitude of them it pauses this one and replaces and pauses this one and replaces and pauses this one and replaces so it's probably a series of pauses that with today's uh um hardware architecture are measured in the billionths of a second to replace it you know it queues one up in memory and then it's just like jump from here to here so it's kind of like you know how hard drives are now hot swappable they've made the os hot swappable i guess it's probably a nice layman's way to put it okay i accept that um it's got to be an example it's got to be coasting right if you're going to replace an engine at speed you're going to coast at some point so it's the digital equivalent of of coasting i don't i'm not i'm not smart enough to know that how that works or you know well think of it like an an engine like a car engine you know it is it is it a, like a hybrid so part of the time it's running on pistons other time it's running on battery so that's maybe that's what it does it installs this secondary engine <laughs> it's like an old submarine either yeah. batteries or diesel yeah so you know occasionally you got a surface so you can exchange the air and recharge the batteries uh golly listening to <laughs> non-kernel level programmers <laughs> Magic happens, and voila, you're done. It's even smart guys look at this stuff and go, "I don't know, it's magic to me." Yeah, you have to keep the magic smoke in the computer. If you let it, out. <laughs> oh I have God. released the magic smoke on more than one occasion. Yes, um, they never work again. Never. Uh, so, moving right along, VMware is being sued for failure to comply with the Linux license. I have heard nothing about this. This is interesting to me, Seth. Fill me in. Yeah, okay. Um, the Software Freedom Conservatory, which is a nonprofit organization that promotes open source software, claims to have been in negotiations with VMware um, for many years about because VMware apparently based um, ESX and its successor ESXi on the GPL or the GNU GPL version 2 license. And so in order to comply with that, you should release your product um, or an open source variant of your product at least. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with charging for it, paying for support, all that. They're not saying you can't make money off of it, but they're saying, you know, you use GPLv2, 
you need to post the source code. So, um, and, you know, of course, if VMware did that, their market share or their paying market share would pro- their market share would probably rise because ESX is the, um, top of the line virtualization software. Um, a lot of people think that still, but you know, why would people pay for it when they can get it for free? So that's what they're fighting back on. And it, it's just like the suit's been named. It's not hashing out. I'm sure that, um, you know, before they did it, they probably opened up shop in Marshall, Texas, so they can sue them in East Texas. Um, and if, if that's the case, VMware better settle. So, I mean, you know, whoever the sewer is in um, East Texas pretty much wins uh, because uh, VMware would be considered the big, ugly man. And, uh, you know, and the Software Freedom Conservatory was trying to stick it to the man. And so power to the people represent. I'm all for protecting open source licenses, but right. this is a kind of a case of, of eating your own children. Um, lots of people run Linux on VMware and use Linux to run VMware on. It's, they're, they're very, uh, symbiotic in a lot of tech's world. Right. Um, and, and so yes, there is a, a virtual box. It's out there and it's open. Um, and so I wonder about these things. If, if sometimes you get a victory, but it's a Pyrrhic victory, uh, you've, you've, you've killed 80% of your men to achieve a goal that wasn't all that important to begin with. Right. But you know, but then again, what's the point of having a software licensing agreement if you aren't going to abide by the agreement you say you're abiding by? So I understand both the, I understand their point of view. Um, you know, but again, you know, VMware, they could have, they could have licensed it with anything. Um, but they chose an open, uh, friendly, you know, and I'm sure they did it to court support from the open source community. And so open source people would use their, Oh, look, we're GPLV2. Uh, we're friends of open source. Um, it's, it's one of those things where, and again, I don't know that this is the case, but you know, a politician will say anything to get elected. And then once they're elected, all bets are off. I don't know, but it sounds, you know, like, uh, from the uh, software conservatory that that's, that that's what they're dealing with. And of course, VM where, they have their own um, side of the story. Um, I, I don't really know what their side of the story is because obviously this article is from the Software Freedom Conservatory side. And I've found some other stories that kind of talk about it's maybe not even all of ESX, but just some some hooks and maybe um, API holders. Um, so this is in the early stages. You know, it hasn't gone to trial to see what part of ESX is actually under uh, GPLv2. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, none of this makes sense to me. Just like it doesn't make sense to me that Ubuntu is switching to System D and people are upset about it. Um, that that whole sentence doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah, this is you know the Linux purists are upset about the rise of System D. Because system D tends to, uh, muck about the system and take control over too much of it. And it kind of gets away from the modular nature of the, uh, Unix Linux right. world, you know, where no, I need something. In other that- words, it's stepping into the 20th century. 
is what's happening. Not even the 21st. It's doing what other systems do. It's taking control from the user and automating it. And that's scary to the graybeards. Well, right. But it's also kind of taking control from the kernel. And, you know, and of course, the fear is, from the Linux user's perspective, is that system D and Linux become synonyms. Um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know, but I know it's a different thing. You know, and what's that quote? I can't tell you if things will get better or worse if we change. I can only tell you that if we don't change, they won't get better. Um, so, you know, that's maybe that's part of Linux's problem is that it's two piecemeal and there isn't some overriding form to, uh, you know, banks for the river to flow through. You know, the other old saying is that what do you call a river without banks, a swamp? And so if there's nothing to keep all the pieces together, you know, then you have the system that just kind of falls all over the place. So yes, system D, you know, obviously it made it into Debian. Um, and you know, that's kind of a big deal. And since Ubuntu is downstream of Debian, looks like it's working its way into Ubuntu. Um, with the exception of Ubuntu touch, they're planning to in the 15.04 release, um, vivid vervet, um, uh, is whenever they expect to have system D in there. Uh, in, in the, in the, um, fold, so to speak. Man, you got all philosophical there. I, I feel like I should smoke a doobie and put on some, some seventies music. That Dude, well, deep. you know, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, carry both co-hosts, uh, mantle tonight. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I'm sure Chris would lament the, uh, the death of Linux purism. Um, but, you know, were he here? I, I don't know. I, I'm not the, uh, I'm not the kernel loving geek, um, right. that can understand anything Linus says. And I, I felt like an idiot through 90% of LinuxCon. Um, but you know, I'm just the end user who, if it's not working, I'll probably fix it. And as long as I can bring up a browser, you know, things are good. So, right. And there's the, there's already a fork of Debian called Dev, DevOne, I think it is. Yes. Uh, that keeps uh, system system V in it uh, instead of system D. Uh, so it's not dead. It's not going anywhere. Um, and the the again, it's the beauty and the curse of open source and of of Linux in general is that it um, can uh, it's it can fragment easily, and that can make people happy, and it can also weaken the ecosystem. Uh, but I don't, I think the way at my philosophy on these sort of things is that people who know way more than I do decided this was a good thing for the future of Linux. So I'm going to trust them on that. However, people who know way more than I do decided that Unity was good for the, the future of, of Linux. And I disagreed with that wholeheartedly. So I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. Yeah. Well, you know, and, you know, I mean, may, maybe we should, uh, maybe we should revisit unity and give it a um a, a fresh set of eyes now that it has been developed to the point and maybe the software ecosystem is caught up with it that might be an interesting future show topic um uh, is is unity still the bane of ubuntu um so. uh, the the conversation i had just this weekend with the with the listener he was quite vehement that uh unity still sucks uh, so that's, there's one man's opinion. I, I gave up on it. I don't, I don't even know. I haven't used it in, uh, two years. So it has to be better than the last time I used it. Right. So we'll, maybe we'll get the command line godfather to weigh in on that. That'd be fun. 
So, uh, yeah, but yeah, so, you know, it's one of those things to where, you know, Linux for the masses, if there, if it's ever going to be Linux for the masses, then the, um, the old guard has to, uh, has to basically allow it or it will never be. So a lot of people want Linux for the masses. A lot of people don't want Linux for the masses. So stuff like unity is required for Linux for the masses. Maybe not unity itself, but stuff like that is required. You know, um, it's like, I have a, I I sold a laptop. I pre-configured it with Linux and set it up to a guy. He ended up forgetting his password and he did the restart. And I've talked to him about coming onto the show has being a guest and talking about, his first exposure to Linux was this laptop and I told him how to do a reinstall and he did it and he got it back up and he's amazed with how good his machine doesn't crash anymore and all that. So for him, for the user like him, you know, they need a unity, you know, they don't want, you know, going to the command and pseudo get blah, 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 uh, all of that they don't care. They're not going to do that. They want to be able to go here and click that and it works. So. Right. And, and I, I think maybe system D if I'm understanding again, and I'm so such a neophyte about that. It, it's the same sort of thing that in order to move things to a more user centric and a less developer centric environment, system D has to happen. Uh, so if you say you want Linux on every desktop, if you say you want it to be grandma approved, you have to, you have to understand that grandma approved means not dev- developers aren't going to be as happy with it. Right. And you, you have to make that choice. Is Linux going to be for developers or is Linux going to be for everybody? The, the, at least uh, the tacit mantra is that Linux is for everybody. But when you really get down to it and you start making these sort of choices, you find that a, lo- a, a significant core of developers don't actually want grandma involved in Linux. Right. Yeah, that sounds well and good until, you know, whoa, yeah. It's like, we say we want that, but now that you've given, maybe we don't want that. You know, people want to- Just like people said they want Steam on Linux. And uh, now maybe we're finding out that they didn't really want that so much. Yes, according to the latest Steam, and I've got to just say, awesome transition. (laughs) Awesome. That was perfect. We couldn't have set it up any better. Yes, uh, Linux has tumbled like a rock down 0.07%. Um, so it's down to 1.02% on the latest hardware survey that Steam, they put these out every month. And again, they don't say how they get these results, the percentage sampled, if it's a randomized thing or if it's only, you know, user submissions, um, you know, and does things like wine. You know, if you're running Linux, but you have Steam through Wine, how does that show up? So again, but Linux is still holding at the just over 1%. It had been slowly ticking up, but this month it took a rather significant hit. Um, when you're only at 1.02, 0.07 is a significant hit. Um, is this a one month aberration? Um, or, you know, is, is it a trend? that Linux is dying. And of course, if you're only ever at 1%, were you ever truly alive? Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's like, it's like when you kill a zombie, have you actually yes. killed anybody, you know, cause by the same token, OS 10 X, uh, fell 0.09% down to 3.23%. So, um, let's just be honest. The gamers world is a windows world right now. That hasn't always been the case. 
But that's where it is right now. Even even Windows versus console gamers. There yeah. are more Windows gamers, more PC Windows guys than there are Xbox and, and uh, PS4 guys. Yeah, and I wonder if that's just a case where gaming hasn't caught up to the marketplace. Because, you know, back in the day, it was Windows was, you know, well over 90% of how people access the Internet. And now, while Windows is still 90% of the desktop, you have iPhones and you have uh, tablets and Android and, uh, you know, Selfish is coming out. Mego is still around. Somebody has Mego out there. I know, um, uh, you know, um, Firefox OS. There's lots of other ways now to get online. And again, and this is just Steam. There's lots of gaming out there that has nothing to do with Steam. So, um, you know, this is one metric and it's painting a picture. Is this representing society as a whole, or are they uh, just kind of cherry-picking their results? Don't know. All right. So the, 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 the Valve guys seem committed to Steam, but it seems like maybe the Linux guys aren't committed to Valve. Right. And, and we just have to see what happens. Yeah. But again, if they're using, if they're using Steam through Wine because the games they want aren't on Linux, does that show up as uh, Linux or does that show up as Windows? Um, Valve has never been, you know, they've never released what, um, how they're getting these results. Linux could be 50%, but it's just everybody plays it in wine, so everybody thinks it's Windows. I Which, d- yeah, not likely. Not but likely, yes. but, you know, you can't rule it out. Uh, and next up, the we've talked about this before. The uh, the core uh, infrastructure group uh, for the Linux Foundation is going to start auditing some of these things that uh, that everybody uses but has never been audited. And it's beginning with OpenSSL. Yes, um, the uh, the CII as um, and it was just I just had to throw the alphabet out there. The NCC group is auditing OpenSSL with a grant from CII. Um, so I don't know. Um, you know, NCC Group, they're a well-known security company, and they're going to actually audit the open SSL code because, you know, Heartbleed was out there and Freak is the latest one. Um, so their goal is to audit the code and uncover vulnerabilities before they're uncovered by other people and patch them so there won't be zero-day exploits because most everything, you know, uses SSL or TLS um in order to browse the web uh, securely. But, you know, if these secure protocols aren't well-coded, then how secure are they? So this is much needed. Um, it's been a long time coming, and I'm glad it's get got. I'm glad the time has arrived. And so hopefully it would be awesome for them to audit the code and say we couldn't find any more bugs. These are the only two that were out there. Um, but anyway, it's just good to have some people who this is their job is to find security holes in code. Um, and, you know, the bad thing about being a programmer is when you write a program, you know how you want it to work. And so you're predisposed to see that it works that way. Where somebody with a fresh set of eyes goes, that works, but that causes this and this causes that. And then you can do this over here and you have a back door. And they're like, no, all I wanted to do was this. So having people who know code and know it from a security standpoint, but didn't write it is a great way to uncover vulnerabilities. As somebody who wrote the code and looked at it every day, um, 
we'll never see. You know, it's like you've seen the what's wrong with this sentence, Paris in VV spring, where V is the last word of the first line and the first word of the second. And you see Paris in the spring. You have to stop and go Paris in the the spring. And then you go, oh, it's two these. So that kind of that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, Auditing is hard. And it's going to take time, but it's necessary. You know, TrueCrypt is still being audited, even though the guys have sort of thrown up their head, hands and, and given up on it. Uh, the the audit is still going on because this is stuff that people is, use, uh, is using. People is using. People be using this stuff. Um, and we trust it, but it's never been – that trust has really never been proven. Right. Uh, earned. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, <laughs> you think you've got a terrible job? Do you have to ask permission by email to go to the potty? Uh, that that's a little that's a little wrong, Mark. The ambassador, yeah, who worked in Nairobi bathroom. Uh, the passenger he worked in the Nairobi. Um, what is it called? The embassy. Sorry, I could embassy. Yeah, yes. the embassy. He had the IT department install commercial internet access in the bathroom, so he could go to the bathroom to send and do official state department work over corporate, uh, public email addresses, such as Gmail, you know, Yahoo, Hotmail or whatever. And there's, because he's the ambassador, he basically says, this is how you're going to do things. Uh, and the state and the IT department says, these are the state department guidelines. This is how we have to do it. And the ambassador says, well, then if you're not going to do it my way, you set it up so I can get my work done. So, um, I just thought, how stupid is this? You know, how can you do public or, you know, if you're doing State Department stuff, how can you think that sending official documents through Gmail where you have no control over the data, you are, you're, you don't own that data. Google owns the data. And allows you to use it in return for milking you for metrics, um, and advertising. Um, but it's just, I don't understand. This is, this is just somebody with a big head and awful proud of himself. And he's wasting, uh, taxpayer money, basically being stupid and heavy handed and being a prima donna who's like, if you're not going to give me what I want, I'll do it my way anyway. It's just dumb. I, I don't know of any good way to report this story because I reading it, I thought this guy's a tool and it's sad that he's was our ambassador to Kenya at the time that he was doing this. So I'm I'm trying to read this as you're talking through it. Yeah. The only place they could do what he wanted to do was in the, the toilet. Was well, apparently that is something about state department regulations allowing outside internet access apparently toilets weren't covered um so you know (laughs) you couldn't install public internet into the ambassador's office you know you couldn't install public internet in the hallway you couldn't install so apparently and this is just me kind of reading between the lines but maybe it's just bathroom wasn't covered because nobody thought they're going to install uh public internet in the bathroom um you know um but so or i i I don't know maybe the bathrooms weren't weren't in a secured area uh so he he can he can get on 
the internet. He can check his Gmail as long as he's sitting on the throne. Pretty much. You know, I was thinking of, remember Google's April Fool's? Um, yes. Toilet uh, bandwidth, whatever, yes. what they call it? I, I, I wish I could remember. Um, I, I, I was almost looked for a link to put in the show notes for this one. But, you know, it's just somebody who, you know, I understand that the ambassador is like to that country. The ambassador represents America and he has the authority of the nation behind him. But if you're using the authority of the nation, to install public you public internet in a bathroom i think you're like on a power trip um and there's just you got other problems buddy just take some fiber and loosen up yeah i had to i had to look it up it's it's uh t t i s p which stands for um, was it toilet internet service provider was that it that, that sounds right so the idea is you flush a fiber down your your toilet and then it goes to a central point somewhere down the line where a guy is standing in a sewage tank he grabs the cable plugs it in directly to their um switch and then you hook a router up to your uh the cable coming out of your toilet and boom you have internet service provider from the toilet and you know this was the Google is famous for doing their April Fools things and this was a few years ago uh and um being the de facto IT guy for almost everyone I know I no I must have gotten about 5 emails from people going is this real um and m- most of them were I don't believe this is real but I'm just checking but a couple of them were finally I can get internet access out in the country um no it doesn't work that way yeah it doesn't matter if you have a septic tank it doesn't work <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. Uh, so, weird. I, that's a bad job. Uh, both ways around, right? So the ambassador who wants to go to the, who has to go to the toilet to do what he feels is his job, whether you agree with it or not, he feels that's what it's necessary to do his job. Right. And the IT guys who have to deal with this, what they're seeing as a, as a raving lunatic wanting uh, broadband to the can, um, both of those are terrible jobs. So maybe if you want a better job, you should learn some Linux. And according to ZDNet, companies really want Linux employees. Yes. Um, you know, we've talked about this has been a pretty consistent thing of the show for a long time, that if you want to make some bucks, you can get in IT and you can learn you some Linux. Um, and I'll just throw a few numbers out there. Um, 42% of hiring managers say experience with or knowledge of OpenStack or CloudStack are having a big impact on their Linux hiring um, positions. Um, not so much yet. Um, open or um, containers such as, um, but 19% are looking for talent, Linux talent with um, SDN, which stands for, uh, I had that in here. I don't even remember um, what that stands for, but you can Google SDN. Maybe we'll look that up for next week. Um, 44% of hiring managers say they're more likely to hire a candidate with Linux certification and 54% expect either certification or formal training of their sysadmin candidates. 60% software defined networking. SDN. Okay. Yes. Software. That's it. VLANs, things like that. Right. Um, 66% of hiring managers are looking for system administrators. Linux professionals with certifications will be the most in demand talent in this year's job market. Um, and in the most popular, 
um, Linux certifications are Red Hat uh, Systems Administrator, Red Hat Certified Engineer, and Red Hat Certified Architect. Um, and these are followed such as a CompTIA Linux Plus. So again, if you want a job in IT, you can get you some Linux learning and you can get yourself a job in IT. And that will be a good differentiator that will set you apart from the crowd of people. And it might help you um, bypass that experience gap that maybe somebody's been in IT a few years and you haven't been in as long. If you have some Linux credentials that might pull you up to equal or even ahead of somebody with a little more experience than yourself. That, that really sounds great. But the problem is there's just no place on the internet to get uh, a Linux education. Uh, it's, you, you just can't do it. You're forced to just learn on your own and maybe search for forums and, and look at YouTube once in a while. And it, it, it really frustrates me. I wish there was a service, uh, where you could, where you could really, uh, study from, uh, professional, uh, teachers. Well, you know, Mark, it's funny you should mention that because while I was browsing around the internet the other day, I came across this, uh, website, linuxacademy.com. It is, seems to be, if not the premier, a premier place for Linux knowledge acquisition. Um, you can do it such things. They started out with uh, video courses and they still have video courses. They will all have video courses. And these aren't like you're not listening to a, pro a pro professor drone on for three hours for five minutes worth of data. That's actually important. The lessons are only a few minutes long. They are time. They are themed to a specific objective uh, you learn that objective you move on to the next video that is the next objective um they have and sure that's that's fine that's all well and good anybody can go to youtube and watch videos but i i need more than just videos i can't just watch something and learn from it i i need some some paper and some some uh really detailed descriptive writing when i'm learning something and surely a place like linux academy wouldn't have that well, actually, they do one better. They have PDF study guides that you can print out to, if you're, if you're like, you re, you learn by reading, you can just do the study guides. They can supplement the video learning. And to go back to the videos for a second, true, anybody can post a video on YouTube and those videos on YouTube may or may not be correct and may or may not be for the version that's been out for 10 years. Um, you have to figure that all out on your own. But in the Linux Academy, they keep it current, keep it relevant, and keep it real. Um, not only with the videos, not only with the PDF study guides, they go one further and a way to elevate your game. They give you access two servers that are live online on the cloud, um, several different distributions that you can uh, go to and you can have multiple servers up at once where the guy tells you how to install, you can practice installing. The guy tells you how to connect via SSH. You can then connect via SSH to a real live Linux server that is well, running. That sounds dangerous, connecting to live servers on the internet. How could I be sure that I'm not bringing down somebody's firewall in, in Costa Rica or something? Well, they are live, but they're in a virtual sandbox environment, so they are protected 
from other places. If you crash this server, you have only crashed your um, lab and you can just restart your lab with just a couple of mouse clicks. So you're not like going to take down Amazon. You're not going to get fired for destroying the company's infrastructure. You know, this is Amazon Web Services. And in addition to Linux, you can learn such things as Amazon Web Services. Um, and so you can learn how to do that. So it's a great practice play. You can practice on actual servers, not just some simulation that mimics the functionality, but an actual server. And you can do not just some weird theoretical classroom mumbo jumbo to get a grade. You can do the actual task that you would be doing in your role as a systems administrator. Wow, that sounds really amazing. What was the name of this place again? It is Linux Academy. You can find it at linuxacademy.com. So if you've got this virtual server up there, if it's if it's virtual and not real, surely you can't communicate with it or with anything else uh, in, in any sort of way. So it's not very practical. I'm just fine. You get one server. That's not a big deal. No, no. You get several servers. They have um, different um, distributions that you can choose. You know, you hear us talk about on the show things like Debian or Red Hat or Ubuntu or Fedora. Those are all different variations of Linux. You can get all of those and more. Um, and again, these aren't just some reduced functionalities. This is full-blooded Linux server that you can go to and examine the file structure and screw up to your heart's content. Because if you're like me, you tear stuff up to learn about it. And then if you can't put it back together, you know how to start over and you know not what to do next time. So, so I can, I can watch videos made by experts in the field. I can, I can look at PDFs that relate directly to those videos so that I can uh, go back and forth between it. And then I have multiple servers that talk to each other in a live environment that I can experiment on. This has got to be ridiculously expensive, Seth. You know, it is ridiculously expensive. If you consider like the cost of a pizza, ridiculously expensive, you can sign up, you can go to linuxacademy.com and you can sign up and pay $25 for a month. So, you know, less than one night on the town, you can do a one month, um, trial kind of to see if you like it then if you like it you can do $65 for a quarter $65 get you three months or you could buy for a year for $215 annually and again and that works out to be like less than $20 a month um, but here's the thing those prices which are cheap if you consider like boot camps, uh, those certification cram factories out there or price of a college course or whatever, um, this is a much better value. But if you use the code everyday Linux, when you sign up, you get a special break off of those prices. Wow. So all of that for, for just a couple of bucks a month. I mean, I, I took my family out to lunch today at a relatively inexpensive place and it was 40 bucks. So you're telling me I can get I can change my careers for less than a, a lunch out with, for my family? Yeah, twenty five dollars a month if you do it on a month to month basis. And what I always tell people is buy a month, and you know wait, don't just say I've got ten minutes, I'm going to buy a month. Give yourself some time that you can get in there, and then if you like it, then do the quarter or do the yearly. And you know if you're somebody and you dig into it, you can plow through in a few months time and probably have the skill set necessary to at least interview for a job. If you're someone who likes to take it slower, um, you know, it can take you a little more time, but the, the information is there. It is, um, 
And they even go so far as they have a lesson browser that you don't have to like just cycle through a catalog and say, this course looks neat or that course looks neat. You can like kind of get yourself a little track going and kind of it'll plan the courses and tell you what order you should take them. Well done, my young Padawan. <laughs> Go to uh, linuxacademy.com slash everydaylinux to get that special pricing deal. And one thing that we didn't uh, get to in our in our mock play there uh, was the uh, the learning plans where you tell them when you're available and they tell you what you should study during those times. So you say, I've got three hours a day, three days a week, uh, and I want to take this course. They will email you every day what you should be studying, what videos should, you should be watching, uh, what tests you, you should be taking. It's your very own personal tutor uh, all through the linuxacademy.com. We're glad to have them, glad to support them, and glad to do really cheesy um, ads for them. So moving right along, uh, Thunderbird. Thunderbird. Is still around. In fact, my system updated Thunderbird just this week. Really? Because there was a new version was supposed to come out in May. So did you just get updates or did you get a new version? I'm sure it was just an update. Yeah, but um, I thought that like Thunderbird, I thought development had been stopped on it. I was um, I found an article um, opensource.com. They kind of do a weekly roundup of some stories and they talked about Thunderbird and uh, their development is still going on. And the actual, the number of installations per month is close to 10 million. So uh, apparently it's not only not dead, it's actually very much alive. So I just, you know, I thought Thunderbird had died. Uh, Thunderbird, in case you don't know, is Mozilla's mail client. Uh, Originally, everything was a bird name. Uh, Sunbird, I think, was their calendaring app. Thunderbird was the mail bird uh, mail app. Firebird uh, was their uh, web browser, which became Phoenix, which became Firefox. So there you go. Uh, and yeah, it's uh, it's in the default Mint setup. So if you're running Mint, you've got it. I don't know too many people that still run local mail clients anymore, but apparently the Mozilla team still believes in them. Yeah, well, apparently though, one of the reasons is making a comeback is. Um there's an add-in you can get, um, Enigma, Enigmail that makes, uh, encrypting pretty easily or it makes it pretty easy to encrypt. So, um, you know, it kind of gives you some point to point encryption before your content hits the wire, so to speak. All right. And speaking of encryption hitting the wire, uh, not too long. Actually, it's been almost a year now, right? Uh, Edward Snowden dropped the bombshell that the NSA has been spying on its own citizens and, of course, uh, on other countries. Of course they're spying on other countries. That's their job. They're the NSA. Uh, but it's there's finally a little bit of, of splashback about that as these other countries are now not buying U.S. software and hardware. Yes, um, China is um and this story it's been out for a couple of weeks now we didn't get to it last week um they have removed things like cisco from uh the government's list of uh, authorized brands um cisco apple intel mcafee they've been dropped so that means that like um you know chinese government's list of authorized brands that you can purchase now no longer include most American companies. So, you know, and I'm sure not all of it has to do with the Snowden things because China wants to be more to be seen has more of a leader in the technology field. And 
you know, you can't be a leader if you're using the only the other person's hardware. So it's sort of like when Oracle um, made the decision to run their software, their database software internally, all of a sudden it got a lot better when Microsoft um, quit using Apache to host their website. Um, IIS got a lot better. So, you know, you know, the Oracle or the Edward Snowden revelations was a convenient excuse to say, you don't buy America stuff, you buy China stuff. Um, uh, you know, with my bad, what's it called whenever you put, uh, in English? You know the word I'm looking for? No, <laughs> no, no, I don't. Um, there, there's a term for it whenever you, you, you talk with a bad, um, accent, not, not necessarily Chinese, but you talk in, and I can't remember the name. Um, it, it came, you know, if there was the old Nintendo game where it said, all your base belongs to us. Um, yeah, all your base are belong to us. Yeah. And, and there's a term for that. And I can't remember what that term is. So. I'm sorry. I'm sure, uh, I wish you had said it so somebody would write it and tell you how wrong you were <laughs> that it right. wasn't English. Yeah. And if, if only there were a place to research these sort of things quickly while I talk about the fact that Apple is, uh, sort of giving as good as it gets or getting as good as it gives, uh, in the lawsuit, uh, department and they're having to cough up half a billion dollars, which they have keep in their, their back pockets for coffee money. Yeah, I mean, it's probably good for them because it's money they won't have to pay taxes on. Um, you know, they keep a lot of money overseas so they don't have to pay taxes on it. Um, but yeah, Smartfish is a uh, company. They're a, they seem to be a patent troll. Um, but they have, and again, this happened in East Texas. And one of the reasons, you know, there's been the whole Apple v. Samsung, but Apple is behind Rockstar and a lot of others. They themselves act as a patent troll in a lot of cases. Um, but, um, Smartfish is a company, their comp, their technology is used in products such as smartphones, gaming consoles, set top boxes, netbooks, app storage, smart television, blah, blah, blah. They ask for 852 million. The, uh, the judge said, nah, we'll just make it 533. So, um, yeah, so Apple, while they've won a lot of these software patent trials here, they lost one. Um, and the patents, I don't know what they were, but they were related to accessing and storing data, digital rights management and payment systems. Which is like everything they do. Right. I'm, I'm no Apple fanboy. But patent trolls shouldn't win. Uh, and it makes me sad that a patent troll has built, I mean, $533 million is definitely incentive to keep patent trolls in the game. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, here's the thing. Apple has won judgments like this, basically being a patent troll themselves. Right. So, you know, it, you know, they, they can't, you know, they can't slap the hand that they use to fleece people and then talk about how bad the industry is. You know, they just have to look at it. We made 600 million with our patent trolling. We lost 533 million with our patent trolling and kept our lawyers busy. So we'll call that a win. Um, lawyers got to litigate, you know, we got to pay them. So they might as well be litigating. They're on retainer, right? We pay them no matter what. Um, and okay, the the last thing that was is the titular topic of the show, uh, but I don't know that we have a whole lot to say about it. Uh, but uh, the the FCC 
did what the courts recommended they do and regulated internet providers under Title II. Now, we did a whole show about that, what Title II means. Uh, I mildly freaked out about the power that it gives them, uh, and the only thing that we have is their promise of forbearance. Now, I'm not one uh, who is known to trust government to keep their word, but it is now the law of the land that essentially the FCC owns the internet. That's that's grandiose speech, but in the same way that the FCC could uh, fine um, uh, Janet Jackson for her wardrobe malfunction during the Super Bowl, they now have that kind of power over the internet. They promise they won't use it, and we all know that governments are are fond of not using their power. Yeah, they they love to get power and then never wield it anywhere. So, um, you know, and I look at it this way. Really, the ISPs, they brought this on themselves um, because they refuse to treat their customers as an interested party in this. And their customers are just seen as cash cows that they can milk for every penny possible. And so because that's their view of the public, it doesn't matter what system is in place, the public's going to get screwed. Whereas if they looked at the public has a partner in the internet it wouldn't matter what the system was it would work out fine you know it's kind of like when the uh, obama administration cracked down on um you know um, outrageous credit prices nothing what happened was all the fees went up except they weren't called service charges anymore because service charges are illegal now they're fees um, and they're twice as expensive as they used to be but look the government's out looking out for the little guy because you know the the thing the group in power in that case it was the banks here it's the ISPs they don't see the people has anything other than a cash cow and so they're just going to milk people for all they can and the government created monopolies um you know you can't have competing cable systems uh until recently uh, in terms of telephones you couldn't have competing telephone people um places so there's no incentive to uh you know the government the companies say this is going to ruin innovation they ruin innovation they're too busy you know giving each other bonuses to invest in high-speed internet for the people to use and figure out ways to say they offer it but make it cost more every month so it doesn't matter you know the government had to step in and do something, and now then the businesses are going to react with a lot of money because they all have lawyers, and the lawyers got to have something to do. So they have promised the one thing they've united on is we're going to fight this. Um, and, you know, they're contributing to uh, senators and congressmen who agree to fight it with them, and it's just going to be bad news for the public. The public is going to lose in two ways now instead of just one. But I something had to happen. So... There's my little mini rant. I'm, it's not as good as your rants, Mark. That's why you're the sultan <laughs> and I'm just the gooey kid. The, the thing is, I would love to to rail about this, but we don't have anything to rail against yet. Yeah. Um, and so my inherent distrust of powerful people doing the right thing tells me that this was a huge mistake. However, the the current the 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 state of affairs prior to uh, uh title II regulations was powerful ISPs not doing the right thing so it's it's kind of the who do you want to be screwed by uh do you want to be screwed by private enterprise or do you want to be screwed by the government 
Um, I and it's, in this case, I'm having a hard time choosing uh, who who is going to to abuse me. You know, because at least with the government, you have the theoretical ability to vote them out and put somebody else in. Whereas, you know, if you're if you have cable. The government set up a monopoly. You cannot have cable, but then you just don't have cable. You can't do anything about it. You can't go to cable company B and compete because cable company B is barred by law from competing against cable country, cable company A in the same geographic area. So at least with the government, theoretically, you have the power because you can vote them out. Now, again, I, I said theoretically, I know, you know, don't email me. I'm not Mark. Um, it, it, it's it's not going to work. But theoretically, you have control over the government. You don't have control over an, a monopolistic business. Yes. And were we living in a, an actual democracy? I would agree with that. Uh, but uh, the, the, the ability of the individual to express any sort of power over the government has been a farce for oh 250 years <laughs> or so um the fact is we're not a democracy we were never set up to be a democracy we're a republic we're right. a representative uh society where essentially once people get to to austin uh austin from texas and once they get to washington they have all the power that's the way it was set up most americans think we're in a democracy we're not we democratically elect people who have all the power once we elect them they can do pretty much whatever the heck they want yeah um, and our only uh, power is to recall them in very limited situations uh, or to see that they don't get reelected. Uh, but once once you're there, you are godlike in your power. That's that's what a republic is, people. We don't live in a democracy. Uh, so that's why I'm scared about this, because these people drunk with their own power now own the Internet, not the American Internet, the Internet. All right. Now, you could say that what they, what rulings they have don't apply anywhere else. But how do you put borders on the Internet? Ask Iran how to put borders on the Internet. They've been trying. Ask China how to put borders on the Internet. They've been trying. Nobody's been able to do it. So the stupidity that originates here in the U.S. will radiate out across the world because of this thing. Now, I hope that smart people are not going to be, stu- be doing stupid things, but I don't have any faith in that. I hope, but I don't have faith. It wasn't it Albert Einstein who said there's only, uh, you know, there's o- the only two constants. Two things in the universe, two things are in- infinite, the universe and human stupidity, and I'm not sure about the universe. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, yeah, unfortunately, I've, I've never met a smart group of people. I've met smart persons, but I've never yes. met a smart group of people. You you take the IQ of the dumbest person in the group and divide it by the number of people in the group squared, and that's the group IQ. <laughs> so if they can put their shoes on, they've actually done really well. Yeah, so if you take a group of two people, each with a 200 IQ, the IQ of them combined is 50. Because two hundred divided by two squared, which is four, is fifty. So see how see how easy it is for a group of smart persons to become stupid. You I'm not gotta- sure how well that math adds up there, because by that math, uh, the U.S. Congress actually doesn't have enough power to to regulate their own heart rate and breathing. Uh, but uh, have maybe, you seen maybe some of the laws something. they try to pass? <laughs> Are you sure that math doesn't hold up? So that's why I titled this show Winter is Coming. Right now, we're okay. 
but I, f- I fear the winter of our discontent is just a legislative session away. Yep. Well, let's, well, uh, let's not even say that. They don't need a legislative session anymore. The FCC rules by fiat. The chairman says, and it is, right? It's, it's, it doesn't have to go through that pesky legal process. The legal process was in, in uh, deciding whether or not they could declare Title II. Right, so they did it. Whoop, now Title II, now we own it. Now you are an infrastructure, and we own you. Um, and you know, if we decide you don't, we if we decide to take a hundred percent of your profits, Comcast, we can do that. Not really. I'm being uh, bombastic, but it's almost to that that power. They are they are almost dictatorial in their power, uh, just as they are in um, in broadcast. That's why there's the seven deadly words in in U.S. broadcast that uh, um, George Carlin used to talk about. You can actually incur so much fines that you lose your business. Because somebody says the F word on the air. This same group of people now has the power over the internet. If I were in the porn industry, I would be shaking in my boots right now. Yeah, that's true. Excellent color commentary, Seth. Yeah, that's why you need to get some type of downloader thing and start downloading it now because it might be gone tomorrow. There. Yeah. How is that? Everybody for color download commentary? the internet. <laughs> download the internet today uh, on the other hand it you know storage is cheap hey the current chairman of the fcc seems to be a reasonable guy with his head on straight uh, he's done some things that i like uh, for example redefining broadband as 50 megabits uh, or greater that that's that seems to be a reasonable thing but he's not he's not elected chairman for life right and we've just imbued the organization with this power forever essentially, until they decide to give it up. And so because we like the chairman now, at least on the surface, doesn't mean that we'll always like the chairman. So I'm, I'm looking at this long down the road and thinking this may be a huge mistake. I, maybe not. Maybe it's going to be awesome. Um, I, I tend to, as, as conservative and anti-government as I am, I tend to be of the mindset that broadband is now um, – as much a basic human right as as f- food and shelter and security. We're not there yet, but we're heading in that direction. We're we're so building our our infrastructure, we're so building our society on the presumption that bandwidth and storage are free and cheap and and infinite. That that's the mindset that everybody who's building a build, business right now is is having. So I can see a generation from now. You know, when I'm old, um, or I'm already old. Uh, when I'm got one foot in the ground, and my my children are in my place, or my and they have grandchildren, I, I'm looking at that world and seeing that they will be in a position where they literally cannot function without broadband. Already, our society can't function without microchips. Right, so a nuclear EMP, the radiation wouldn't have to do anything. The electromagnetic pulse knocking out the microchips could bring the American society to its knees in a, a matter of a week. That's yeah. where we are. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. It's just a, it's a recognition of where we are. We can't go back, at least not easily, not without great upheaval. So fast forward a generation, now broadband is as inf- uh, 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 integral to our society as the microchip. It's that important. We can't function without it, and we've just put it in the hands of a group of like twenty people. 
Yeah, I don't disagree with that. But, you know, here's the thing. You say it's, I don't think it's like water yet, but has it reached the level of electricity? I think it, I think it really has because you don't have to have electricity to live, you know, but if you're going to have a modern life, you have to have electricity. You don't have to have the internet to live, but if you're going to have a modern life, yeah, you do have to have the internet to live. So, um, you know, you can get by without the internet. You can get by without electricity. Um, so I see, you know, is broadband or not even broadband internet access. Is it of the same importance in American society has electricity? If you see the answer is yes, then there has to be government oversight. Now again, I won't I won't say title two because if you can come up with, you know, option C and option C rocks, man, I'll join option C. But if you think that internet access is as important to American society has electricity, there has to be government oversight. And you know, the problem, you know, it's like, well, you know, I mean, you could talk about how labor unions were necessary because the ownership was greedy and the government was too weak to stop the owners from taking advantage of the people. So that gave rise to labor unions. The government is a lot stronger now. And so you could argue that labor unions, while maybe they still have their place, aren't required in today's society. And I know I just pissed off every Democrat out there. But and again, I said if so, you know. The internet, the government needs to be strong enough to keep the corporations from screwing the people. So because the people have no power to protect themselves in the monopolistic system that the government created. So I can't leave the cable company and go to the other non-existent cable company without moving. So until there's some recourse for that then there needs to be some type of government oversight. And you you said it perfectly right there. The government has to be strong enough to keep the mess they created from getting out of hand. Uh, they started this thing yep, and then didn't have the power to ride the, the bull that they raised. Right. So we've given them that power, and now we just have to trust them not to raise up a dinosaur. I hope so. It, it, I, and I'm scared. Dude, I'm scared. You know, because it's a very, very scary thing because you've, you know, there's no option. You know, you know, what happens if the government screws you? You know, you can elect, but even, and let's just for pure hypothetical argumentation, the government takes this power and the government uses this power and they get all draconian with it and they impose regulations and fees, um, and everything that makes the internet untenable. So we throw out this government and put in the exact opposite government. Well, that exact opposite government isn't going to say, we don't want this power. We don't want these taxes and give it back. They might tweak it some, but the government's not going to quit taking money. A government's not going to give back the power and say, oh, we didn't need that power here. Private world, private organizations and companies, you take this power back. We freely give it back to you. Yeah. How often does that happen? Uh, Immediately in, after the revolution. Yes. That's when it happens. Yeah. So that's, it's a very scary thing. So, you know, um, Oh man, I want to go there, but I'm not. So, uh. <laughs> okay. So that's, I think, 
I, like I said, I wish we had something more substantive, but we, we are literally at this point, we are figuratively at this point waiting for the other shoe to drop. Uh, and we don't know if it's going to be on our heads or, or in the direction of progress. Um, and, and I, I, I almost didn't want to do this topic because we didn't have anything to say. Uh, but you know, the, the, the state of affairs that we predicted would happen has now happened. And the same things that I was worried about before I'm worried about now. Um, and I, and I hope I'm wrong. I, as much as I hate to be wrong about most things, I really want to be wrong about this one. I really want this group of people to do the right thing and to prove me wrong and prove to me that they're not power mad and that they haven't lost their IQ when they, the, when they gained their power. But I, I don't think I'm wrong on this one as much as I'd like to be. So yep. that's, that's our discussion about um, the coming winter of FCC regulation. If you live outside the U.S. and have a different view on this, I'm curious to hear what it is. I, I know that uh, in, in European countries in particular, there tends to be much more trust of the government and much more distrust of, of private enterprise, where here in the U.S. we tend to distrust government and trust private enterprise. Um, uh, you know, again, your political leanings uh, help point in that direction. But overall, as a country, we tend to distrust our governments, whereas European countries overall as countries tend to trust their government. So I'm interested to hear what you have to say about this and what impact do you think it might have on your country, on your culture, as our culture is struggling to to ride the lightning, you know, um, I'm interested to get the feedback on that. Uh, but before we do, uh, Seth, tell us what happened this week in computer history. Okay, this week in computer history actually kind of ties in a little bit with the topic. Um, this week, March the 5th, 1975, the first meeting of the Homebrew Computer Club. I had never... If I had heard of this, I don't recall ever hearing about it before, but it was a group of early computer hobbyists in Silicon Valley, um, among them such people as um, Steve Wozniak. Um, so these people got together and said, hey, there's this thing called a computer. Anybody have any cool circuit boards or what can you do with yours? Hey, look what I can do with this one. Um, you know, and Apple computers actually grew out of the homebrew computer club. Go, um, I put a link to the Wikipedia page to it in the notes. It's just an amazing story. It's just a group of people who liked computers, got together, um, periodically and talked about them. And then, you know, and the thing was they were just like, Hey, this is cool. I don't know how to do this. I'm having this problem. Oh, I had that problem. This is what I did. Oh, you know, I've changed designs and so I don't need these four circuit boards. Oh, cool. I need two of those and I've got this chip. And then, oh, I wonder what that chip does over here. Uh, you know, if you've seen like Pirates of Silicon Valley, they talk about the homebrew computer club, but they take a lot of license, um, you know, artistic license with it and maybe don't, um, give it quite the honest treatment it deserves. Um, but it was just an interesting story to, uh, to read about and see the people associated with it. Um, you know, people of today, they've never heard of Osborne computers. Um, right. But, you know, that's a big name in the early history of computers. Lots it still of still isn't supercomputers. Yeah. But, you know, but again, the end user type person, they're like Osborne computers. Wasn't that a villain in Spider-Man right. or something? Um, 
but no, really cool stuff. It's an awesome thing. They had a newsletter. Lots of stuff grew out of that. Um, just really neat story. Take the, I mean, I could sit here and read the, uh, Wikipedia page to you, but take a look. Um, just read about it and just see. I mean, this is just a group of people who ended up revolutionizing the economy of the world. Um, yeah, Steve Wozniak, I forget who he worked for. I think maybe HP. Um, a, um, at one time he worked for, I think, Atari. And, and they, they gave him, this space to work in and and a lot of the components he built the first apple off of or that what would become the first apple was their stuff and they owned it because he worked for them and it was an intellectual property thing and he built this thing in a, on a wooden case breadboarded and hand soldered and took it to him and said this is what i built are you interested they said nah we don't care um and so he took it to steve jobs hey are you interested oh yeah i'm interested so uh you know the the homebrew brew computer club. He says Wozniak himself. And if you don't know that name, and I could understand why you wouldn't, because he hasn't gotten the the press that his partner Steve Jobs did. Wozniak was the engineer behind Apple computers for the early years. So the the Apple One, the Apple Two, the Lisa, uh, the Two E, uh, all of those things. He designed the the hardware. Uh, the that he was the the guy that made Steve Jobs. Uh, software run, right? So Jobs dev- designed. He was an interface guy, and he was a, he was an engineer in his, in his own right. But Wozniak was the technical wizard that made it all work. And he was he's been happy to sort of fade off into oblivion, uh, but uh, not oblivion, but obscurity. Um, and he is uh, he is he's a pretty special guy in the history of technology. And and he himself says it all began here at the Homebrew Computer Club. He said, you know, I think I can make one of these. Uh, and that's. That's pretty cool, and it all happened this week in history, 1975. I was three years old. Yeah, I was um, I was not quite three uh, when this happened, but I did turn three. And, right. Uh, yeah, I was two at this time, exactly. So, but yeah, I just it was a, this was really cool stuff, um, and so I wanted to share. You know, a lot of times I kind of like just come up with some off the wall things, but this is in the history of computers. This is one of the watershed moments, I believe. Cool. And so while we're on the topic of stuff Seth looked up, what do you got for us this week to lower my productivity so that you look like a better hiring option? You know, this one might actually end up helping a lot of people's productivity. Um, if Uh-oh. you, if you go to www.angerroom.com, um, this is if you've ever wanted to go office space, um, um, you can just go there and basically you get to take a baseball bat to this room with kind of older model computers and televisions and stuff and just beat the crap out of things. So, uh, it's kind of like some therapy. Um, Oh, this isn't software. This is a real thing. Yes. This is a real thing. So you go there and you like, you take your frustrations out and you beat. And if you have an old computer lying around, you don't know what to do with those old CRT monitors. Um, make a donation to the anger or angerroom.com. So, um, uh, you can go to, uh, there's like just, it's, it's really cool. I don't know why this took me to the uh, mobile version. 
um, whenever I clicked on the link in the show notes, but angerroom.com, there's like a YouTube video, um, that kind of shows what it likes. You can do like a five minute break, a 15 minute lash out or 25 minutes. Um, you know, and they, you get kind of like safety goggles and a full suit to protect your clothes. And then you just, you just beat the crap out of stuff. So, uh, you know, don't take it out on your company's infrastructure. That might get you fired. Go to angerroom.com. And, um, I, you know, and I, they're in Dallas. So they want to like kind of branch out and be like everywhere. But for now, they are only in Dallas. Um, you know, I just, it's just, I'm, I kind of really want to go there. <laughs> I mean, and, and so $25 gets you five minutes. Five minutes of wanton destruction um, is, I mean, that's, that's a lot. You'll probably be, find yourself exhausted after two minutes. Yeah. Um, so, and, and the 15 minute $45 session, that's not a big deal, right? 50, $45, again, like I said earlier, is less than, or, or just about the same as I paid for lunch for my family today for 15 minutes of just smashing stuff. Um, if you're fat and out of shape like me, you can't do 15 minutes straight. Uh, by the time you're done, you will be exhausted and it'll be a very cathartic experience. I, this is a great idea. Yeah. I mean, how much is it? How much is an, how much is an hour with the therapist? Uh, you know, I think you could probably do five minutes at the angerroom.com and get more bang for your buck, both literally and figuratively. I wonder if we could, uh, get some sort of deal with them. We advertise, they advertise and, and we could get like a special bonus for our Dallas. Oh, that- dude, I'm going to, I bet you, I want to, I want to see if I can get them on the show. I'll go there and I'll do like a report and then we'll talk about them and give them some more free publicity. Oh, I'm so doing that tomorrow. I'm going to, I'm going to shoot them an email. Yeah. Cause all, all, every, every guy in our line of work wants to break something. Um, once in a while. Yeah. It's a great idea. And you know, and, and if you're, if you're somebody and you're, you're the IT department or who doesn't have some, well, Probably everybody's probably dumped them in landfills by now, but if you have some old CRT <laughs> monitors lying around or you know that, you know, you used to have like a 27 inch flat screen TV and now you've got 50 inch flat screens TVs everywhere and, and you put a sign out the, in front of the, you put it, you put it out in front of your house with a sign that said $10 and nobody would steal it because it's so small. The anger room. There you go. All of your useless computer junk, they will take and destroy and make money cool. off of it. It's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, I mean, the, you could call recyclers, but generally only if you have hundreds of, of units. Like when I, at the, when I was at the school, we would do that every summer. We'd call a recycler, but uh, and they would take them and, and pull the useful stuff out of them, but they would only take... You know, like a truckload. Right. If you don't have a truckload, these guys, these guys might take it off, you know, just one or two units off your hands. That's a great idea. Anchorroom.com. Yeah. Fun stuff. Looks very fun. Like I say, I'm going to, I think I'm going to, I'm going to reach out to them. See if uh, I can build some consensus to get them on the show. 
All right, so uh, this is the part of the show where I tell you how you can contact us. Let us know what you think about anything we've said and anything we didn't say and anything you think we might say in the future or anything that you imagine that we said in a fevered dream. Uh, go to elementopi.com, click the Contact Us button at the top of the page. Uh, that's the preferred method. Uh, but also, if you'd like to send an email, you can send it to edl at elementopi.com. That goes to all three of us. Uh, or if you would like your voice to appear right along beside us, uh, you can call 559-IMOPI. That's a free call anywhere in the u.s um you know that's i said that's a free call it's really not it's a free service it's not a toll free call i've been saying that's a free call anywhere in the u.s but it's not it's if you're using google voice it's a free call um but if you're just like on a regular cell do people actually still pay for cell minutes i i i'm sure somewhere in my contract there's a mention of minutes but i've never i haven't gone over minutes in like a decade and a half so it just occurred to me as I was saying that it's a free call anywhere in the U.S. Maybe it's not It's not a toll-free call. It's not an 800 number. Um, so maybe I've been misrepresenting that for three and a half years. I do want to also say we have noticed in the last few weeks some of our listener feedback has got caught by the spam filter. So if you have sent us something and, you know, you don't hear us get back to you or it doesn't show up in the show in a couple of weeks and you want to send us another one that says, Hey, did you get my last email or something? Yeah. We've noticed here recently that some of some legitimate cuss or, uh, you know, listener feedback has been trapped by Google's otherwise very impressive spam filtering service. Um, yeah. Another reason to use the contact us tab instead of sending an email directly, uh, because that I have always getting through anyway. Enough about that. Those are the ways that you can contact us. We we covet your feedback. We appreciate uh, you letting us know what you think, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you in the, in the future. Also, uh, I'm I've been accosted by people a couple of times that I don't mention enough how you can give us money. Um, far be it from me to prevent you from giving us money. Uh, Patreon.com. You can go to elementopi.com slash Patreon. Uh, you can donate any amount of money you want per show. Anywhere from a penny to a million dollars. If you want to donate a million dollars to the show, I will let you. Um, and the way that works is uh, they bill you at the end of the month based on how many shows we put out. So say you want to donate a buck a show, at the end of the month, your credit card will be charged $4. Uh, that's a great way to do it. And we encourage people to do that. Also, uh, at our um, uh, website, there's a tip jar. You can donate to us via PayPal or via Bitcoin. If you want to do that, we have that set up as well. Uh, or you can also uh, go to elementopi.com slash Amazon. When buying your Amazon purchases, you will see nothing. The only difference you'll see is a little pound sign at the end of the URL. That means that there's a cookie that they put in your browser. Yes, an evil cookie uh, that tracks what you do over, I think, the course of three days. And anything that you buy uh, in that time period, we get credit for. It costs you nothing more. At all, it's exactly the same price to you, but we get a percentage of a referral fee. Uh, so those are the ways that you can contribute to us, and we appreciate any time anybody does that. Uh, I would like to see more Patreon people just because it kind of gives us a better sense of numbers, even if you just try, uh, donate a penny, um, which, frankly, is kind of a douchey thing to do. But <laughs> even if that's what you want to do, it gives us a, a metric of this many real people are listening to and appreciating the show. Download numbers uh, are tricky because, you know, uh, you might download one show on three devices, uh, on, on two uh, two computers and a phone. 
so it's it's hard to track down download numbers, uh, but Patreon gives us a great way to know who's out there and who actually is listening. So lmnop.com slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Uh, is a is a great way to do that, and I encourage you to do that. Also, uh, we encourage you to do ratings and reviews anywhere you go. Those don't do directly contribute money, but they do may, maybe draw people in, and the bigger audience uh, we can have, the better. So there's all of that. I, I, I don't like to do that bit about how to give me money. It always feels a little dirty to me, uh, but I've had feedback from like three different people over the last three weeks independently of each other saying, you really need to talk more about how people can donate. So. There, there you go. And you know, Mark, um, I think if somebody wanted to donate a million dollars, we would like rent a suite and we would do a private show just for them. We would set up in the suite and we would all fly out there and we would do a live in-person show just for them at a hotel suite somewhere, like a, a get or a, an, a room. Not a, what is it called? Convention isn't it? Ah, what is the hall? word I'm looking for? No, you know, a lot of hotels have, um, Rooms boardroom have rooms that you can rent. Um, yeah. so not a, not a room to stay in, but like yeah. a, in a, a conference room, conference room. Yeah. So we would rent a conference room at a hotel and we would set up and do a show just for you. If you don't any million dollars, how does that sound? That'll get somebody uh, to do it for a million dollars. I would do a show on your own private jet. If you wanted, I would, I would personally serve you dinner i would spoon feed you for a million dollars so seth aims a lot lower than i do well no i'm just thinking you know i mean like if i were somebody i don't know that i would want the three of us in coming <laughs> to my house i will you know. feed you grapes egyptian slave style for a million dollars i was trying to think of something somebody might actually do <laughs> Put it this way, just give us the million and then we'll talk details. Yeah, tell us, you know, give us like a three options of what you would like us <laughs> to do. <laughs> that could go bad real fast. It's okay. Okay, and before we go too far down that rabbit hole, I'm going to wrap up the show. Seth, as always, th- thanks for being here, being the great host that you are. Listener, thank you for being the great listener that you are. And for now, I'm going to say that ends this episode of Everyday Linux. Everyday Linux.